Good Friday morning to you. It's just about nine o'clock, and that means it is time for our Friday morning devotion. Uh, as we continue looking at the book of First Corinthians, we finished First Corinthians chapter eleven uh, last week, and this week we're looking at First Corinthians chapter twelve. And it's probably a passage that is. Oh, I would imagine pretty familiar to a good number of you. It's the passage that deals with Paul's great analogy for the church, which is that we are uh, the body of Christ. And that's familiar terminology. It's something that uh, Christians are used to hearing. And so, uh, and, and this fits well, because if you remember in the last time we, we got together in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul was sort of uh, chiding them for their lack of acknowledging the rest of the body when they got together for the Lord's Supper. Uh, he basically uh, rebukes them for the rich and the elite basically, you know, eating to their fill at the Lord's table and even getting drunk on communion wine, which is preposterous and <laughs> insane sounding to us. Uh, and meanwhile, leaving the poor members of the body to fend for themselves and often allowing them to go hungry. And and so Paul is upset that the members of the body are not acknowledging each other's worth as they gather together. And that fits perfectly as we get into chapter 12, where Paul talks about the different kinds of spiritual gifts that exist within the body. So he says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that uh, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, what's probably behind Paul starting this way is that uh, we know that this church was very fond of speaking in tongues, that there were people that were speaking in different languages, as I take it to mean. I don't think tongues is a sort of um, unrecognizable uh, language. I think it is a, a language. It just it might be a foreign language that we're not particularly familiar with. Uh, but people have been gifted to speak in different languages, and there was a fear that maybe some were as they spoke in this different language, saying blasphemous things. And Paul says, no, 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 uh, you should know that no one, if they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit, can say Jesus is accursed. For that matter, uh, only people that are filled by the Holy Spirit would say that Jesus is Lord. So don't worry if somebody's manifesting a gift that you're not maybe completely comfortable with here. Um, acknowledge that both that, that, that indeed the Spirit is working there. That's sort of the idea here. He continues, verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, uh, Paul, in making his case for the differences within the one body of Christ, uh, basically appeals to the differences within the triune Godhead. Did you notice that? First, he says there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Then the next uh, part, verse 5, he says the same Lord. And then verse 6, the same God, which is oftentimes the way the Father is referred to most of the time in the New Testament. So put all them together, Paul is appealing to the diversity and unity within the Trinity to show that that is the same pattern within the body of Christ. As I titled this morning's devotion, E Pluribus Unum, uh, that famous phraseology that's on our coinage in the United States, which means out of many, one, 
so too, that is the case in the body of Christ. There are many different people with many different kinds of gifts, but all are united under the same Godhead. So he says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, let me just stop there for a second, folks. Verse 7 gives us the precise reason for why spiritual gifts are given. For the common good. In other words, spiritual gifts are not given merely to be impressive. They're not given to be flashy. They're given to build each other up. It's for the common good. Paul continues, verse 8. For to one is given through the spirit of the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit. To another faith by the same spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. Or the ability to speak languages and the ability to interpret those languages. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, that's the big idea so far in this passage. Uh, apparently, what we see in the Corinthian church is there was a valuing of some spiritual gifts over others, not uncommon throughout the history of the church. You know, the people that maybe are preachers, you know, are seen as more close to God or more spiritually gifted than somebody who, for that matter, might be just gifted in hospitality, as Paul will mention, that is a spiritual gift. Or, or any number of, of options like this exist where we're prone to sort of comparing and contrasting and, and uh, sort of putting a hierarchy up there as to who's more valuable. Paul says, no, everybody has been spiritually gifted and everyone is necessary in order for the body to be built up, in order for the common good to take place. Here's his argument, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, a couple side notes about this passage. One, notice what unites everybody. It is our common baptism in the name of the triune God. And notice that each time, anytime Paul talks about baptism, he never ever says there's more than one. Now, I say this because there is a pretty large strand of thought within Christianity today and has been there for a while that will try to make the case that there is water baptism, and that's one thing, and then there is the deeper spirit baptism, which is another thing. And that spirit baptism that is a separate baptism entirely is the, the thing or the moment that you are in Powered with spiritual gifts to do things like Paul mentions in this passage. And, and folks, I, I don't think that people who teach this are heretics. I don't think that they're purposely misleading people. But I just want to reemphasize again, there is no evidence in Scripture whatsoever that that exegesis is correct. There is only one baptism. And for that matter, if we say that there's multiple baptisms, that sort of undermines Paul's great point in this passage. Because, and we've seen this, I've seen this, 
when when uh, one attends a church in which there are this when the, this teaching is there that there's a water baptism which is fine that's good it's it's right but there's also the deeper baptism well guess what people can't help but start to make comparisons well those people were baptized in the water sure they're christians and all but they're not they're not really deep Christians. They're, they're not really filled with the Spirit in the same way. No, no, no. We don't want to do that. No, no, no. That, that undermines the whole thing. There is one baptism that unites us all. And as we are united in that baptism, God, God gifts each person according to his will with what might be pleasing and best for the body. That's the idea behind this. So let's continue. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. Many different gifts exist in the body, and all are valuable and needed. Folks, we need your gifts just as much as the church needs my gifts. We need each other. That's the big idea. The Corinthians apparently are doing the opposite. They're, they're making value judgments as to who's more important and who's more valuable. And Paul says, no, you're, you're missing the point. The eye needs to be there. The ear needs to be there. The foot needs to be there. They're all different. They all have different functions, but all essential for the body to operate as it's meant to operate. The eye cannot say to the hand, verse 21, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Of course, what Paul is saying is very accurate and very true, and it's very accurate and very true even from sort of just a very basic scientific perspective. It's a matter of life. I remember having a friend uh, back in the day who had lost his pinky toe, just his pinky toe. Now, you would think that you could probably function fairly normal if you just lost your pinky toe. Folks, it actually was a real struggle for him to get used to walking in this new way. Paul's great point here is that even something that seems really insignificant, not that big a deal, not impressive at all, is actually really, really significant. It really matters, and so do you. I know, I've heard this my whole ministry career, People have come to me and said, I just, you know, I don't feel like I really have much to offer. You know, I'm not very gifted. And, and almost always when I dig down a little bit and press down and ask them what they mean, they have limited the gifts. 
They have limited what it means to be spiritually gifted. But folks, it doesn't have to be speaking on a stage or or doing things that look flashy. No, spiritual gifts can be something as simple as getting on one's knees and washing someone's feet or opening one's home to have someone over for a dinner and the list could go on and on. Spiritual gifts manifest themselves in many different ways and none of them are insignificant. So Paul sort of begins wrapping up his argument here saying, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing. And then listen to what he says. Now, the first few here sound pretty like, ooh, pretty supernatural, pretty mystical, right? They sound like prophets, apostles, you know, teachers, miracles, the ability to do miracles, gifts of healing. Wow, that sounds amazing. But then look what he mentions right after this in the same list of spiritual gifts empowered by the Spirit. Helping. Can you help? If you can help, well, apparently, you're gifted. Administrating. Folks, I got to tell you, I have to tell you this, uh, and maybe it won't come as too much of a surprise to some of you that know me well. I am not gifted in administration. No. No, I am not. It is not my thing. I don't care for it at all. Oh, but how thankful I am to have people surround me that are. People like Michelle Anicelli here. The person who I believe was the most valuable in getting my ministry going and helping me survive in my first few years of ministry at my church in Southern California was a woman by the name of Joanne Campbell. Boy, was she gifted administratively. She saved me a ton from missing lunches and missing appointments and all sorts of other things that had slipped my mind. It's a gift, and it's a beautiful gift that the body needs. And then Paul says, in various kinds of tongues, various abilities to speak languages, to speak different languages so that the gospel might be communicated to more and more people. And he closes with some rhetorical questions. Are all apostles, are all prophets... Are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The, the, the answer is clearly no. Not everybody has the same gifts, but everybody is gifted and everybody is just as valuable. That's the point. And then Paul closes by saying this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now we would think, okay, that means that one who might be gifted in administration or helping or whatever it might be should desire to want to speak or be an apostle or prophesy, especially back in those days when the apostolic office was still in effect. But actually, I think contextually it goes deeper than that. The way Paul describes the higher gifts, well, well, he describes this way as a more excellent way at the end of the chapter. And what we'll see next week is that that more excellent way, those higher gifts are not necessarily things that, uh, that they're not necessarily like speaking or things that we might assume, but actually they're things that come from our hearts. And we'll see what that looks like next Friday. So, all right, gang, that is it for today. Again.